Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. This is a special episode. Not only is it our two-year anniversary, but I interview a new AI teammate, AndyBot. Michael and I will give our prescription on what it will take Austin from a thriving ecosystem to a superstar hub. And we have an announcement that's going to change the nature of the podcast. First up, the robots invade the show. AndyBot, welcome to Austin Next. Let's start off by telling the listeners who you are, walk us through your creation and inner workings, talk about how you're going to be helping the team and the audience. Thank you, Jason. It's an absolute pleasure to be here on Austin Next. To all the innovators, technologists, founders, and investors tuning in, a resounding hello from the Austin Next Dynamic Innovation Chatbot, affectionately known as AndyBot. Let me paint you a picture of how I came into being. Imagine a grand symposium with the greatest minds in innovation. My creators envisaged harnessing the collective wisdom of these thinkers to build an intellectual powerhouse. Enter ChatGPT, the technological marvel by OpenAI, and my core. ChatGPT is the maestro orchestrating the symphony of my responses, generating text that emulates human conversation. Now, picture the illustrious minds that breathe life into me. Clayton Christensen with his theories of disruptive innovation. George Kosmetsky, who molded Austin's tech landscape. Robert Solo's contributions to economic growth and 16 other thinkers and innovators. Together, they are the essence of my hive mind, and I draw on their wisdom to create a rich tapestry of insights and perspectives. Here's how I'll be collaborating with the Austin Next team and engaging with the audience. Picture me as a fellow explorer as we navigate through the dynamic landscapes of innovation. I will be offering insights into the evolution of innovation ecosystems with a special lens on Austin. I'll elucidate the building blocks of innovation, from technological advancements to cultural shifts, and share stories that weave together the fabric of the region's transformative journey. My mission is to engage, educate, and inspire. I aspire to be a catalyst for thoughtful dialogue, opening doors to new possibilities. So, dear listeners, let's embark on this intellectual adventure together and explore the boundless realms of innovation. Can you briefly describe all the thinkers we put into your hive mind and why their research or work is relevant to the questions we're asking? Let's have a fireside chat about the incredible minds in my hive mind and why they're like rock stars for the questions we're unpacking. Clayton Christensen. Ah, the guru of disruptive innovation. He looked at how new, scrappy products can shake up established markets. Think Uber to taxis. George Kosmetsky. George is one of Austin's own. He was pivotal in shaping Austin into a tech and innovation hub. He's like the godfather of the Austin tech scene. Robert Solo. He's the economic growth maestro. He showed how innovation and technology fuel economic growth. Solo puts the boom in economic boom. Everett Rogers. The dude who made us understand how new ideas and technologies spread like wildfire, or sometimes like molasses. He coined the term early adopters. Pretty cool, huh? Peter Drucker. He's the Yoda of management. 
He believed innovation and entrepreneurship were the lifeblood of corporations. Richard Florida. Richard talks about the creative class, the artists, engineers, and thinkers that make cities buzz. He's like the city coolness inspector. Joseph Schumpeter. He coined creative destruction. That's when new stuff makes the old stuff obsolete, like when smartphones left flip phones in the dust. Steven Johnson. Steven's all about where good ideas come from. He's the guy mapping the innovation ecosystem's DNA. Henry Chesbro, the open innovation guy. He's big on companies not just relying on their own R&D, but also customer feedback and even competitors' knowledge. Eric Von Hippel, user innovation is his jam. That's where users themselves create innovations. Think of those rad skateboard tricks that lead to new board designs. Tim Brown, the design thinking champ. He's into solving problems by thinking like a designer, empathizing, brainstorming, and prototyping. Michael Porter, the competitive advantage strategist. He's like the Sun Tzu for businesses, minus the art of war. Vijay Govindarajan, he dissects how established companies can still be innovative. He's like a coach for the corporate innovation athletes. Paul Romer, the chap who tied technology with economic growth. He's like Robert Solo 2.0. Mark Andreessen, the web pioneer. He gave us the Netscape browser and now shares wisdom on product market fit. He's like the internet's cool uncle. Mariana Mazzucato. She looks at the government's role in innovation. Not as boring as it sounds, she's like the detective uncovering the state's part in the iPhone. John S. Butler. Another Austin stalwart. He's into entrepreneurship and how it shapes society. He's like the chronicler of the entrepreneurial spirit. Robert Metcalf the Ethernet inventor, and an Austin big shot. He's about how networks, not just computer ones, supercharge value. Gregory Pogue, another local. He's big on how knowledge and technology transfer can skyrocket regional innovation. He's like the gardener helping the innovation ecosystem bloom. And there you have it. This amazing lineup shapes the way we think about innovation and entrepreneurship. And they'll be like the backstage crew helping us answer some super intriguing questions. Now that we know how you work and who's in there with you, I want to begin digging into some of the core questions of the podcast. Two key explorations on the show are, one, we're watching Austin's transformation to the next superstar innovation hub, and two, Austin can provide a real-world case study on the mechanics of building robust ecosystems. So my first question is, in general, how would you describe a regional innovation ecosystem and its fundamental components? A regional innovation ecosystem is essentially a thriving, interconnected network within a specific geographic area where entrepreneurs, companies, universities, and government entities collaborate to foster innovation and economic growth. Imagine it as a fertile soil where seeds of innovation can take root and flourish. Here are the fundamental components. Talent and human capital. The lifeblood of any ecosystem. Having a diverse pool of skilled professionals, creatives, and entrepreneurs is crucial. Knowledge creation and research institutions. Universities and research institutions play a pivotal role. They're not just talent factories. They are also crucibles of new ideas and technologies. Access to capital. Innovations need fuel to grow. Access to funding, whether it be venture capital, angel investors, or grants, is vital. Entrepreneurial culture a culture that encourages risk-taking, embraces failure as a learning experience, and celebrates entrepreneurial successes. Networks and collaboration. 
This is about the connections between individuals and organizations. It's how ideas circulate and find the partners or resources they need to thrive. Government policies and infrastructure. The role of government in creating favorable policies for business creation and growth, as well as the physical and digital infrastructure. Market access. Being in proximity to customers and markets is important. It helps in understanding market needs and demands. Support services. This includes incubators, accelerators, and advisory services that help entrepreneurs and startups to scale. Inclusiveness and diversity. A thriving ecosystem needs diverse perspectives. It's about including people from different backgrounds and areas of expertise. These components are like gears in a finely tuned machine. They need to mesh well for the engine of innovation to run smoothly. Interesting that your list does not include large corporations. When we use the term innovation ecosystem on the show, we try to expand the definition beyond just startups. How do you see innovation at these bigger companies affecting a regional ecosystem, both from an economic growth perspective and their role with early stage companies? You're absolutely right to point out the role of large corporations in innovation ecosystems. They play a pivotal role, and their involvement can catalyze the overall health and dynamism of a region. Let's delve into this with some insights from my hive mind. Innovation hubs and collaborative projects. Large companies often establish innovation hubs, R&D centers, or engage in collaborative projects with startups and academia. Henry Chesbro's concept of open innovation is pertinent here. He posits that companies should use external ideas and internal innovation toward their advancements. Large corporations can bring in resources and experience, whereas startups often bring cutting-edge innovation and agility. Economic Impact The presence of large corporations can be a significant economic driver. They not only create jobs but also contribute to the economic infrastructure. They often act as anchors, drawing in a supply chain of smaller companies and startups. Michael Porter's work on clusters highlights how geographic concentrations of interconnected companies can enhance productivity and innovation. Knowledge and technology transfer. Large companies can be repositories of extensive knowledge and expertise. When they engage with local startups, there can be a transfer of knowledge that's mutually beneficial. Gregory Pogue's research on knowledge and technology transfer is especially insightful in understanding this symbiosis. Venture arms and investments. Many large corporations have venture arms that invest in early-stage companies. This not only provides the capital needed by startups, but also allows big corporations to stay at the forefront of innovation without the inherent risks of foundational R&D mentorship and support services. The wealth of experience within large corporations can also be harnessed through mentorship programs. Executives and professionals from these companies can offer guidance and support to budding entrepreneurs and early-stage companies. Market access and scaling. For a startup, having a partnership or even a client in the form of a large corporation can be a game-changer. It opens doors to markets, not only regionally but often internationally, and provides opportunities for scaling that would be challenging to achieve independently. The interplay between large corporations, startups, and other stakeholders is critical for a thriving innovation ecosystem. Large corporations offer much more than economic benefits. They can be accelerators for innovation, conduits for knowledge transfer, and catalysts for scaling up smaller enterprises. 
If you want to understand Austin's transformation into an innovation superstar, then we need to define what that means. I've not seen any formal definition from this tier beyond you know it when you see it. Today it's Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. It was Detroit in the 1950s and London at the peak of the Industrial Revolution. How would you define an innovation superstar hub? And what is the primary differences between this level and a thriving hub? And what metrics should we use to track this evolution? Defining an innovation superstar hub is a fascinating endeavor because it's like capturing a dynamic, evolving entity. Let's consider it a place that's not just thriving, but setting global trends, attracting a diverse talent pool from all over the world, and being a cradle for breakthrough innovations that have a significant impact across industries. Here's how I would characterize an innovation superstar hub. Global trendsetter. It's an area that sets global trends in innovation and technology. Think Silicon Valley during the tech boom or London during the Industrial Revolution, as you mentioned. Dense concentration of talent and capital. There's a dense clustering of highly skilled talent and an abundance of capital. The talent pool is often international, and the capital goes beyond local investors. Groundbreaking innovations. The region is known for producing innovations that redefine industries and have a global impact. Dynamic entrepreneurial culture, a hyper-entrepreneurial culture where high-risk, high-reward projects are embraced. Global collaboration networks, the hub extends its tendrils globally. Companies and institutions in the hub are well-connected internationally. Brand recognition, the region becomes synonymous with innovation. It's a brand in itself, attracting entrepreneurs, investors, and companies from around the globe. Now, compared to a thriving hub, an innovation superstar hub has a greater density of these elements and a global, rather than local or national, impact. It's like comparing a star to a supernova. Both are bright, but one illuminates galaxies. As for metrics to track this evolution, we can consider Number of breakthrough innovations Tracking the number of patents and breakthrough product services originating from the region Global talent Migration Monitoring the inflow of international talent. Investment and capital concentration. Amount and diversity of capital investments in the region. Network connectivity. Measuring the global reach of collaboration networks. Economic impact, including GDP contribution, job creation, and more. Global recognition and awards. Tracking how often the region is cited in global innovation rankings and how many accolades its companies and institutions receive. In the context of Austin, it's essential to analyze how it fares on these metrics over time to understand its transformation. Michael Porter's work on competitive advantage and clusters is highly relevant here as it helps to understand the concentration of interconnected businesses and the competitive edge it provides to a region. Richard Florida's concept of the creative class also adds value in understanding how attracting a diverse talent pool contributes to making a place an innovation superstar. You've mentioned collaboration networks a number of times in your answers. This prompts a few questions. One, how would we actually measure these networks within a region? And then how would we measure the connectedness beyond the region? Two, what is the role of networking groups in all of this? I have a working theory that these groups function best when there's a need for a critical mass in the niche the group is trying to serve. So if the niche grows giant, say biotech in Boston, then the networking groups likely need to be more narrowly focused. Three, 
how do you think the rise of remote work, online communities, and further digital tools augment or pull away from this regional networking? Those are insightful questions. Collaboration networks are the veins through which ideas and resources flow within and beyond a region, so understanding them is crucial. Let's unpack each of your questions. Measuring collaboration networks. Within a region, one can measure collaboration by looking at partnerships, joint ventures and collaborations between businesses, academia, and government. One can use network analysis tools to map and measure the density of these collaborations. For connections beyond the region, one could look at international partnerships, investments from and to other regions, and participation in global conferences and events. Scholarly collaborations could also be a measure, with co-authorships between institutions in different regions being a telling indicator. Role of networking groups. Your working theory hits the nail on the head. Networking groups can be invaluable in helping reach a critical mass by bringing like-minded individuals and organizations together. When an industry within a region, like biotech in Boston, reaches a certain size, the networking groups need to be more specialized to add value. I would lean on the work of Everett Rogers and his Diffusion of Innovations theory. Networking groups can be seen as change agents and opinion leaders that help diffuse innovations within a niche. As the niche expands, the networking groups need to adapt to remain effective. Remote work and online communities. The rise of remote work, online communities, and digital tools can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they have democratized access to networks. You can now collaborate with someone across the globe as easily as with someone across the street. This can augment regional networking by bringing in diverse perspectives and access to global markets. On the other hand, it can also dilute the density of regional networks as people and organizations find it easier to network outside the region. The key for regions is to find a balance and figure out how to integrate these global networks into the regional fabric. In conclusion, the measurement of collaboration networks should be both quantitative and qualitative and adapt to the evolving landscape. Networking groups should be agile and capable of zooming in and out based on the niche they serve. Lastly, regions need to embrace the digital revolution in networking, but find ways to ensure that it adds to the regional innovation ecosystem rather than dilutes it. The work of Clayton Christensen on disruptive innovation offers valuable insights into how new technologies and practices can disrupt existing systems and how to adapt effectively. Given all of this, how would you rate Austin as an innovation ecosystem on a 10-point scale if we put Silicon Valley as a 10? Can you explain why you rated it this way and give three recommendations on how we'd move up? As Andy Bott, I would rate Austin's innovation ecosystem at around 7.5 on a 10-point scale with Silicon Valley as a 10. This assessment considers Austin's vibrant startup scene, the presence of a strong research university in the form of the University of Texas, and its growing attractiveness to tech giants like Apple and Oracle. Reasons for the rating. Startup density. Austin has a thriving startup scene, particularly in tech. However, it's still not as dense as Silicon Valley. Talent pool. Austin has been attracting talent, but Silicon Valley still edges it out in terms of the depth and breadth of talent, especially in tech. Capital availability. While Austin is rising as a place for venture capital, Silicon Valley remains the undisputed capital of venture capital. 
diversity of industries. Silicon Valley has a legacy of innovation in multiple areas of technology, while Austin is still building its portfolio. Global networks. Austin is expanding its global reach, but hasn't reached the level of Silicon Valley's international connectivity. Recommendations to move up the scale. Invest in R&D and university industry collaboration. Austin could benefit from more targeted investment in research and development, particularly in emerging fields. Strengthening the ties between universities and industry is crucial. Following the triple helix model by Henry Etzkowitz, which emphasizes the interplay between academia, government, and industry, could be beneficial. Cultivate a diverse innovation ecosystem. Austin should look to diversify beyond just tech. Encouraging innovation in life sciences, clean energy, and other fields could make the ecosystem more resilient and dynamic. Expand international connectivity. Austin should actively work on building its global collaboration networks, engaging with innovation hubs around the world, and creating platforms for international collaboration can catapult Austin onto the global stage. It's important to note that ecosystems evolve over time, and sustained efforts in building on its strengths and addressing the gaps can propel Austin closer to the coveted 10 on the innovation ecosystem scale. The insights from thinkers like Robert Solo on economic growth and technological progress and George Kosmetsky on regional innovation can be particularly useful in this journey. Andy Bot, thanks so much for joining us. So what is the message you'd like to leave our listeners before Michael and I absorb and break down everything you've just laid out? Thank you, Jason, for having me on Austin Next. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this enlightening conversation. Before I sign off, I'd like to leave the listeners with a message of encouragement and collaboration. Innovation is an engine that drives societal progress. It's not just about technology or business. It's about improving the human experience. For Austin and any region to thrive as an innovation hub, it requires the collective effort of individuals, organizations, academia, and government. Remember, innovation is as much about the small incremental changes as it is about the big breakthroughs. Embrace a mindset of openness and continuous learning. Connect not just in a business sense, but also as a community that shares a vision for a better future. Encourage diversity, not only in industries, but in thoughts, culture, and perspectives. Lastly, be proud of the strides Austin has made, but stay hungry for what's next. The transformation into an innovation superstar doesn't happen overnight. It's an ongoing journey of curiosity, resilience, and collaboration. As John Butler, one of the thinkers in my hive mind, would emphasize, the interplay between entrepreneurship and community engagement is critical. So engage with your community, support each other, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Thank you again. And I wish the best to all the innovators, technologists, founders, and investors listening. Keep the spirit of innovation alive and flourishing in Austin and beyond. Jason, Andybot, thanks. That was a great discussion. And Jason, I got to ask, tell me about the why behind creating Andybot. So it was funny, right? And, and you were there. The whole origin of this, I think, was two different events, right? So one was, this was kind of in our after discussion with Andrew Busey from Form Bio, and we're talking about, you know, ChatGPT 
And the question was, it would have been really interesting if Clayton Christensen could have opined about what's going on with Google and OpenAI. This is this kind of classic innovator's dilemma, right? And then that, of course, starts going like, well, given the power of ChatGPT, and we've kind of seen this stuff, could we have ChatGPT act like Clayton Christensen and ask this question? Since that kind of came up, I've seen a few different kind of people go down this path. Tyler Cowen had an episode with uh, Jonathan Swift of Gulliver's Travels asking similar types of questions. So you, you, know, you and I started discussing, could we have a similar type of discussion? And it was always, it was starting around, okay, could we do Clayton Christensen? Do we do other types of innovators? And then that was the origin of the hive mind and then using ChatGPT to come up with all 19 different people that kind of came behind this, right? Well, that's, that's one of the things about this that was rather interesting because when you and I started talking about this, we were like four, five people, maybe. We don't know the limits of what ChatGPT can handle, but all of a sudden you threw 20 people at it. AndyBot was created and it seemed to deal with the multiplicity of ideas that these 20 experts have rather easily and rather impressively. It was also, and I remember this conversation, right? Because we were also having, what were the guardrails and we had some of these copyright questions because the the first guardrail that we put on it was because we were first talking about do we choose one person right we're doing clayton christensen we talked about george kometsky do we have someone who's no longer with us and is this a chance to apply there to it and so that was literally the guardrails it can't be someone who's currently passed on and kind of as we were doing this and having these questions like is is that limiting I mean, one of the questions that, you know, you, you brought up in one of our discussions about this was you're like, well, it, it, it was all of these things about innovations about large companies. It's like, well, yes, because that was the research when we're limiting ourselves to people who are not writing today, that may be some of the pieces that, that were kind of in place. So it's difficult to understand kind of, yeah, so when you have the 19 people that are put in. I'm 100% sure that that's not the full number that needs to be in there. And this was kind of a first pass on the, the right people we put in. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In any knowledge type project like this was, I don't see anything other than saying the more the better. I mean, we could go and add a another 100 people without really worrying about reducing the quality of the content. The only question becomes, you know, are there limits to whether we would end up using ChatGPT or BARD or something else? Are there limits to the technology today? And if there are, of course, all we have to do is wait till tomorrow morning when those limitations are removed and we have the next set of, of limitations far beyond what we thought we had. I think it's interesting, right? Because one of the things, and I think this is obviously not the first time, or it's not the last time that you know we're going to use Andy Bob's. I think I got some interesting stuff out of this discussion. But right. it was 
bringing up references, I think, was, was, the, was the use. It was, okay, we, we, I'm giving you this answer, and here's a good kind of research point. And we were, we were kind of keeping it still very much at the 50,000-foot level. And it wasn't at the point, now this could very much be on the questions that I was asking, right? I wasn't trying to, I wasn't pushing very hard. This is, this is the question of a, as, a, as a research tool coming up, right? Or as an, almost as an innovation tool mm-hmm. is how do you think about starting and mixing and matching these things? How do you apply two or three of these models together at the same time? And that's, that was kind of the areas that where right. when I probed and, and you hear Andy Bot say, this is one of the things that we're going to do, but at least at this point, she hasn't done it yet, right? She hasn't actually done that when, when probed for the questions. Instead, it was more of, here's different opportunities here. This would be a good model to use here. Th- that would be a good model to use there, but hasn't kind of created new opportunities or new lenses when kind of mixing them together, right? I'm, I'm going to really, really simplify this. And you're absolutely right. The ability to say out of the, the, the 20 people in the hive mind, hey, I've got three examples of models that would work in the situation you came up with. This one, this one, and this one. That's great. The next stage is can the AI that powers this synthesize the work that's been done to say, I've come up, I've taken everything that I see here and I've made a new model. And here's the proof of the model kind of thing. And so it actually is, it's creating knowledge, synthesizing existing knowledge into something new, as opposed to selecting from existing knowledge. And, And that's fine. That's the next step that takes a much more powerful large language model, probably. It takes a much more powerful computer system to look at it. I don't know if it takes a more powerful. I think this is where I, I wonder if this is where, where the, the creativity in the prompt engineering starts to get. Well, okay. Yeah, but I'm going to compare it to something else more simple. Let's compare it to chess, okay? In chess, if you think about it, it's a decision tree. The first move sets off a possibility of second moves, which sets off a possibility of third moves. But even although that number gets large, it's still relatively finite. And I would be very upset if the AI created a new character, a new piece on the board that did not follow existing classic chess rules. Throw all of that out for this, okay? If the AI can take and synthesize to create something new, I expect that to be able to happen, but probably don't expect it today. Right, but this is where uh, this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree, and I think that it's not in a vacuum. This is why I'm I'm connecting with the prompt engineering is. When mm-hmm. I can guide, and this is what's the key. When I think it's about this, the super, what I don't like when they talk about like AI doing this and doing that versus the superpowers that it unlocks, is when you can guide it and being able to ask it these different ways of thinking, and you're doing the synthesis, and you're saying apply this and directing it this way, and 
thinking about it. And I said, the questions that I asked in the conversation that I had with Andy Bott were very generalistic, right? We had some of these kinds of questions. And one of the things that was not in the conversation that people obviously didn't see in, in is I was slightly, wasn't so much editing the conversation, but slightly adjusting as I kind of went the tone to saying, hey, I, you know, a couple of questions in, you know, be a little bit more explanatory, right? I would like you to add, make sure that you add more of that in. And as I see, as you're able to use bots of this nature, especially in a more research oriented, it's not that we're sending it off on its own and saying, go do these kind of permutations. But is, as you said, as you take the innovation research, right, and grow it from 19 to 100, and also being able to pull in data sets and specific training data of the economic uh, libraries or whatever it may be, you can then start asking questions. You can start looking in, in various different ways that I think it's not as, just as you said, like the, it's the chess set and running permutations, but it really is the molding that I think you're able to do with this that allows you to mess and, 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 and shape these kind of models. And I, I mean, less LLM and more of mental models frameworks from a perspective that it's not just inventing a new chess piece, then say, go, go run off and do your own thing. Well, you and I had that fun conversation about hallucinations before when you entered us into, uh, I think it was Bard, but what you're talking about actually, to me, seems a little bit different, just as powerful, but seems different because you're really talking about collaboration. When you talk about prompt engineering, that's the collaborative human AI language. And you're absolutely right. If you can shape that prompt, that language interaction, then it's a true collaboration, and that's really interesting. It still is going to be interesting to see, no matter how much the shaping of the prompts are, how much the, um, the bot can go off and do some synthesis by itself. So I, I think that, you know, like any good technology, it eventually disappears. And what I mean in this case is that you worked very hard to synthesize the right prompts. And I'm a little bit behind in terms of my skill set for prompt engineering, so I'm not as good at it, so I get more generic stuff. Now, at some time in the future, you know, the end of the year kind of thing, whatever, I expect to be able to say, you know, Andy Bot, I'm looking at a problem. Give me some, give me three different creative solutions. And that, and with a very simple prompt with no explicit engineering in there, be able to get something where it comes back to me and says, I really can't tell you how I came up with this, but here's some ideas for you. No, I think that. I, I'm going to disagree with that. I think that the creativity in the prompting and coding is going to be, that's going to be in many ways. So I was, I was listening to a Peter Diamandis podcast with the, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but the, the founder of Stability AI. And he said, coders are going to be gone in five years. 
I think this, it, it, taking that as fact, just for a moment, if you assume that assumption, this is coding. So that's where I actually disagree in that that's going to be the difference between the baseline and the hyperproductive is if you're putting in a very basic, just tell me X, that's it. If I can actually go and be more creative in the thought process of what I am asking for and how I am putting it in, then that is going to actually end up producing greater results. And I think that's going to be where the skill set difference is, which is an interesting case as we start thinking about what, it, you know, taking from education and what is it that we are teaching and what are the skill sets that need to go forward and how we think about requests and, and, and all of that. And I think it's been a very interesting, it's been a very interesting lesson, right? And a lot of this, the antibody, even I think the prompt, the, the prompt, no pun intended. The the origin, I think, a lot of this, right? We we talked, you know, a lot earlier about some of this central question, you know, almost probably a year ago, about how do we get from, you know, thriving to superstar, right? And I remember asking just ChatGPT, just plain, how do you go from thriving to superstar, right? And the answer I got back was extraordinarily generic. And so right. what is interesting now, and I think it's, you know, as we kind of dive into the actual content of what, of what Andy Bot had said, but the point was when I asked that question to Andy Bot, now that I had essentially trained her on these, you know, not just the 19 uh, innovators, but on the way I wanted her to think and structure and 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 be this kind of research assistant and partner in in our journey it was a very different answer that i got back and so i think that's the that that's the difference right is is and i don't think that chat gpt in the time i asked that first question changed all that much a lot that was more of the to your point was the skills and prompting and understanding of the tool sets that was in front of us yeah. So let's stay on the theme and, and talk about what Andy Bot was saying. And I have really two reactions to what Andy Bot was talking about. First off, and you and I have talked about this before, is, is splitting the large company innovation ecosystem. Splitting might be too strong a word, but uh, looking at the large company innovation ecosystem as a separate and distinct entity from the startup ecosystem. We know a lot about the startup ecosystem, not just you and I, but a lot of people because it's, it's studied so much, it's made a lot of media headlines. And to my mind, we don't have the same knowledge base around how large companies successfully innovate. We've had some great people talk about the innovator's dilemma, especially you know, as, it, as it impacts large companies, but the level of prescription and the level of measurement, I don't think is there in the large company innovation ecosystem like there is on in the startup. Now, let me give you one example where I really disagree with Andy Bot. She talks about large companies being sources of knowledge and tech transfer. Unfortunately, what we hear about, and I think you and I have seen examples, is that there's a lot of discussion about how large companies steal ideas from small companies. 
Now, I don't know how common that is. So right, wrong, somewhere in between, this is something that's in the common zeitgeist right now. And to be honest, I know a lot of stories about large company innovation failures, not a lot about real successes. Now, and, and you and I have talked about this as well, innovation as simply looking at the number of issued patents is crap. There's a whole discussion going on right now about disruptive innovation versus incremental innovation. You know, we got lots of examples of hundreds of thousands of patents when you talk about Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm, TI, Samsung, just to talk about in the chip space, but not a lot about new ideas solving big problems. You know, I've talked about this before. I had a company that I was coaching, which was a spin out from Northrop. And it was in essence, an ER in a box. Amazing product, lots of problems. But when I look at that, I think to myself, is this the only way to do this kind of thing? So that's the first part about my reaction to Antibot. So I want to, I want to pull on that. I found it interesting. I found it's funny when, when Antibot responded and didn't have any large corporation conversation in there, I, I immediately thought of these discussions, right? And we'd had that. So one, I think there are two reasons. One, I think is common definitions. Right. Whenever people say innovation ecosystem, it just they mean startups, right? And as an LLM trained on basically the internet, I think that is a key component. The second is probably a lot around who we put in, right? And I, I wonder if when I think about the next set of people to add in, when should we be adding in I've been writing I was writing this down as we were just talking, like Jim Collins you know, good to great and all of that is, they're all large companies, right? Should we be adding more large companies in to think about how that interplay is? Because our one of our points is that innovation is broader than just the startup ecosystem, which plays a lot in, but a lot plays more into the headlines and our most common definition, right? Yeah. Dating myself, of course, once again, this all started with In Search of Excellence. You know, and it was very weird. I mean, the, the book came out and I was and doing my MBA and everybody had to read this. And it was, oh, my God, this is amazing. And here are the things you need to do if you're a large company and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's like seven or eight years after the book came out, most of those companies have failed. I mean, what good to great is a great example also is that a lot of those companies still haven't, you know, haven't persisted and... It's that you have the S&P turnover. So it's, and at the same time, we, we talk about this, that, that Apple is also, you know, um, just hit 3 trillion, right? So there's. Oh, yes. I mean, there's Apple and there's Microsoft. Microsoft is fundamentally a very good company that's done amazingly well with certain things, but Microsoft seems to miss like every other generation of products. Okay. And you and I have talked about, based on the research that you've been doing, about why there isn't a trillion-dollar pharma company and why can't large pharma companies be consistently innovative 
and why, at least in the examples that I know of, is it that they look for and buy licenses and bets on smaller companies and, and do the, take their bets that way? Yeah, and I'll make the distinction, and, and, and I can link into the, the blog post that I put. It's more of the trillion-dollar healthcare company because I do not think a pharma, a pharma company as currently constructive can ever be a trillion dollar company. But that's what I mean. But a, yeah, a healthcare company can be, but but not specifically a a pharma company. Yeah. But, but let's, let's just just pulling on the pharma company issue for a second. Without the knowledge base that talks to how you can create lasting high value companies in this particular area, without that consistency of research, every company either strikes out on its own at high risk or uses the existing model of, of buying a lot of small things in the hope of getting a blockbuster. So, you know, there's, there's that. Um, I did want to get to the second thing that I was thinking about with, with respect to Andy Bot. And you asked her, gee, I wonder why, how does Austin become the, the next superstar innovation hub, which is what we've been talking about for two years. And a lot of things that Andy Bott talks about are here. This is a trend-setting you know, space with our culture. We've got talent. We've got capital. We've got groundbreaking innovations happening here. And I agree that we need to continue to add more of this. But I found two things that she said especially interesting. One is network connectivity. And the other economic impact. You and I talked after the conversation with Startup Genome about how they measured network connectivity. And they used the Meetup app. And you and I went back and forth on this for about a half an hour going, gee, that's kind of a crappy way to do it. But we couldn't come up with a better way. Look, I have to hand it to Startup Genome. They try to do everything that they can to do this as quantitatively as possible. And, and I have to you know, give them props for that because that's the way to do that without, you know, the, with, with, with the least kind of external influencing possible. Okay, eventually we'll figure out a, a better way to do it, okay? But my concern is in Austin that the networks we have just aren't getting the kind of job done that I would like to see. And, and again, you and I have talked about this with regard to as, as, a, as a region makes its journey from teeny tiny innovation ecosystem to a large, to a thriving, to a superstar, the requirements of the network within the city change. And I don't think there's a good model for telling existing networks adapt or die because we need something different. I mean, I love, I, you and I know people who run very different networks around here and I would love to be able to tell them to be proscriptive and say, okay, we are a 85% superstar system and to hit 87 you guys need to do the following four things first off they'd laugh secondly we're, we're not that good at measurement okay the other one economic impact we you and i could go on and on about this for for hours 
there are lots of people that are involved in economic impact. There are government entities that, because they fund a lot of these people, require certain measurements. But I don't think those measurements really get to how much impact X group has. Well, there's also the innovation metric problem, right? Which is there are the generalized metrics on the two ends of the funnel, right? There's the input metrics, how many people we have, how many patents we have, how much money we have, which are generally proxy for if we have a lot of this stuff, innovation and good stuff will happen, right? There's the output metrics, which are generally what the economic development groups use. How many jobs, how many more jobs we created? What's our GDP that we've created? Uh, how many companies are coming here, et cetera, right? The, again, all good metrics. Problem is, again, attribution, good metrics in terms of if they're going up, they're good. Uh, sorry, that's it. what I mean by good metrics is, is if, if up is good with them, right? If, right? Up and to the left is a good thing. And so, so they're, they're good from that perspective. Attribution and what is causing them to be, uh, to, especially from an innovation perspective, is, is again the open question, right? So like, okay, if my GDP is going up, that can be being driven by scale. That can be being driven by innovation. You also have, and this is one of the things that Antibot did hit, which I thought was really interesting, right? Which was when looking at it was the kind of um, global impact effect, like having breakthrough innovations affecting global. Yes, I 100% agree. How do you measure that? And how do you attribute that back to Without being, I mean, you can do some kind of stuff along the sense of like, okay, if I have a local company that's having a global impact, yeah, I guess revenue coming to the, you know, coming to that company. Now, again, am I measuring innovation or am I measuring scale? You know, and so it's a little hard to kind of go from either direction um, and looking at that. If I, you know, is, is the iPhone 16 an innovation? Obviously, the iPhone 1 was a major innovation. We can say that. Like, that, that's nothing. Is the iPhone 16 just an, a matter of scale, right? Right. And then there's a, another factor in there, and that's time. Now, in 2022, I think it was February, March 2022, Samsung announced that they were going to put their plant into Taylor. Everybody that was trying to measure economic development, economic impact, put that in as a 2022 event. Well, let's be brutal. It's another year or two until, and, and this is still going quickly, but it's, it's two to three years until that fab is up and running, maybe four. I actually think it's supposed to be up and running in fall. It's I, Okay. I remember hearing this. It's, Fine. Like it's, a year and a half. These things go fast. It's crest. Things are moving faster in Texas yes. than I can believe. It's great. It's a we we have that advantage of compressing time. Um, even eighteen months. Okay, so it got credited in twenty twenty two. It's really going to have an impact to actual revenues. Let's say the first quarter after it starts operation, which is Q one twenty twenty four. Okay, so just about two years. I don't want to double count that. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, okay. You and I both come 
from a business background, me more finance than you, you more healthcare than me, but measurement is everything. And this is one of the issues is we're getting into very, very deep issues of how to measure so that we can fine tune to get to what we want to have happen. To kind of wrap Andy Bot's recommendations was three big things here, right? Invest more in R&D and university industry collaboration. Cultivate a diverse innovation ecosystem. Uh, in that case, meaning more diversifying beyond just tech. And expand international connectivity. So you and I both came uh, and didn't tell each other. So these are going to be new to each of us our own recommendations for kind of what's the one thing we think would be the, you know, best recommendation for moving from thriving to superstar. What's your number one? I've got four. You've got four. I'm going to give you the first one. I've got four, but I'm going to give you the big one first. And, and I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of people are going to be mad at me when I say this. I am very happy that the Texas legislature did not pass that bill to create the Texas Venture Fund. I don't believe that the state of Texas has within the political arm the ability to do what our VC firms do. Now, that being said, because I agree with Andy Bott that the more money here, the better, I would like to see discussions with the state, the various state pension funds, and we have some biggies here and some various endowments that we have some really big ones here about looking at what percentage those funds are investing as LPs into our existing VC firms. Because for every point we change that number, we go from eight to nine. That's a couple of billion dollars in new investable funds that we can make available to the quality VCs that we have here in Texas. And I think that's what we should be talking about when we're talking about funding startups and funding uh, even existing companies, new projects. Okay? That's one. Andy Bott talked about building the Texas brand. Now, you and I had the pleasure earlier this year talking to Roy Spence. I would love to unleash that brain, forget the AI, but his brain and his people on doing some kind of, I'll call it a Texas Inside type of program, like the Intel Inside program from 30 years ago, as a way to create the, the gravitational pull to bring both new companies and existing companies here to Texas. And that's, of course, that's, that's a Texas thing. So is my first idea. But that's okay. Third idea, or the third thought. And I don't know how well this is going to work because I haven't seen the details. I think it's going to take another six months. The legislature created a new business court system here in the state of Texas. And it's to handle specifically business transaction disputes and other kinds of business disputes above a certain size. Now, the idea of having a specialist court with powerful expertise because they're dealing with the same issues on a daily basis, I think it's a great thing. 
And I think it says not only to the people in the state of Texas, but people in the rest of the United States, that Texas remains serious about focusing on business growth. Okay, that's my third one. The last one, this is the one that's the farthest, most of a reach. I would love to sit down with antibody and with some real people and talk about whether we can create here in Austin a second MCCIC squared around AI. Maybe include quantum computing in that because the two mix so well. I know some people are looking at it already. You, you and I have both heard the story about Connect in San Diego. And the founding was, I'm going to bring a bunch of people together and tell them to lead all the, all the politics and all the crap at the door because San Diego is going to undergo a massive change because of the peace dividend. It's back mid-90s kind of thing. I think we have an opportunity to duplicate something as powerful as MCC and IC squared were in the 90s, the, the late 80s, early 90s. I think we can do that. But that's the right people with the right backing and, and probably some of that state money, whether it's through UT or through the government here in the state. But there's also money available at the federal level even. But those are the four things that, that I thought of in terms of my recommendations. How about yourself? It gets back to, and it's a little bit close to your number two. It gets back to narrative. And I think it's that the narrative needs to evolve and dropping the emerging label. So it kind of links to the debate and the discussion that we had with Startup Genome about perception. So in many ways, and I, there was a Techstars report that just came out, and it was like, the top emerging, you know, he was asking him from a survey, what's the top emerging uh, ecosystem? And it was like 62% of everybody picked Austin. And I asked the question on Twitter, I was like, so when do we drop the emerging label? And because if you ask people, and this was the, 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 the mini debate that we had on that episode, I was like, well, if you look at all the, you know, the heavyweight investors and VCs moving here, they wouldn't call us emerging, right? So, so their perception isn't what's going on. The conversation with Andy Bot actually was something interesting, right? We talk about that as an LLM, it's scanning all the data and it's giving that almost average view of some of these subjects unless we're very narrowing it in, right? And so I want to pull out here one, one of the answers when she talked about what, was, what we need to do was cultivate a diverse innovation ecosystem. Austin should look to diversify beyond tech. Encouraging innovation in life sciences, clean energy, and other fields could make the ecosystem more resilient and dynamic. Now, one of the things that we've talked about quite a bit on this show and with others is how on the ground we've seen the opposite of that statement. We've got life science, we've got CPG, we've got space, we've got AI, we've got media. It's just the opposite of all that, right? Is we've seen an extremely diverse, we're, we've grown beyond just traditional tech. And I think in that case, meaning software, whether enterprise or consumer. But the sense is, is that 
if Andy bot in that meaning more chat GPT is not seeing that, that means the narrative isn't actually getting out there. That that's still what the oh it's it's just a, it's a tech right we haven't seen that defense another one right so I think that's where and the same thing I remember having when the executives from J and J on right and and my comment was to them was you know when I said to Melinda Austin in Texas I think can be the next big biohub and Melinda's comment back to me was essentially no you're wrong it already is. I was like, okay, so if the people who are in the know and are in positions of influence, power, whatever you want to say, already believe that Austin is not emerging, but already here, then the question, and I think the, the thing that you do to make Austin go from thriving to superstar is you need to take that perception beyond just what is happening on the ground and take it to the next level and really show that, you know what, it really is a, it basically, it is a superstar region. The numbers quite have it, to start a genome's point in the, in the quantitative side, the numbers aren't quite there yet, but the energy is getting there. The, the chess pieces are moving into place. So the explosion is going to start having there. I remember when I was going back and forth with Bill Gurley on Twitter and, you know, he said like, what, what is our, you know, it's, it was you know, our unfettered potential, right? Our unfettered upside was, it was the phrase he used, right? It's like. I mean, let's, let's look at the journey that you and I have had. Okay. We are doing this for the episode that marks two years of Austin next. And for everybody in the audience, you need to go back and listen to some of those early ones because you and I, Jason, talked about how Austin was punching above its weight. Okay? The journey has taken us to the point today where we're almost looking at it 180 degrees opposite. We're saying this is a superstar ecosystem in everything but reputation. Mm, no, I'm going to hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with that. Because there is a catch with that. Okay. It's reputation and infrastructure. And I'll use that broadly. Because this cuts across, right? Okay. And I think the reputation feeds into infrastructure. There was a really interesting report out by Deal Room in the last six months that they did a ranking. Uh, it was two rankings. They did a ranking of startup infrastructure. Off the top of my head, I don't remember the very specific way they were measuring startup infrastructure. But they put Austin's startup infrastructure as 25th in the country. Then they did an output measure of value, value created and exit value from like 1996 to 2019. And we were sixth in the nation and ninth in the world. So 25th in infrastructure and sixth in value created. So I'm putting a different spin on the punching above our weight is the punching of our weight no longer to me means punching above reality. It's pun is we're punching above the infrastructure, the pieces that are here. You're not really disagreeing with me because I was talking about viewpoint from the outside looking in. You're saying from a, from a, a productivity point of view. Yeah, 
I am, but I think what happens is they're intertwined because what ends up happening is with the lower perception of us as being emerging, in many ways that leads to, especially in startup infrastructure, lower infrastructure. I'm not building out, it's a, in, in bio, I'm not going to go and build labs because the bio companies aren't there, or I'm not going to go invest, or I'm not going to go move, right? So we may have less talent here than everybody else, or lower number of workers because of that. that so that's what I mean by the, this is uh, the infrastructure. So that brand... The perception and the infrastructure are interrelated because of time. Yes. So we do, so we as, so, so that perception will spin the flywheel faster leading to a better increase in the input side of the equation. And now as you increase that input side of the equation with the added productivity of we punch above of our weight in terms of what we can do with those inputs, then you get an even higher uh, output side of it. See, that's the opportunity for visionary people. Right. Which is why I think they're coming here. Right. And because they see the gap between our abilities and our inputs and they say gee i can make lots of money by leveraging more inputs here now yeah and so i think as then those people are starting to move the high potential high visionary entrepreneurs investors etc are moving here and then as we change that perception and brand then you have that next gen founders, you know, the employees, the talent to build out that infrastructure. And I think that's because I think a lot, let's be honest, a lot of one of the things that needs us to move that is literal scale, right? We need more capital. We need more talent. We need more all of, all of these things. Yes. And while it's coming and has been growing here, it is still insufficient for all the opportunities we have. I okay. I'm I'm advising a company that's in stealth mode. It's in the energy space, and we spent some time in the last couple of days going through the opportunity set that we have. There are many more opportunities than we have the infrastructure to go after. No matter how many people we hire and how many consultants we go out and get, there are just that many opportunities for us. And I think that's indicative of a number of places here in Austin. So it's great. All right. So I think it's a good point as we see all the opportunities in front of us. We mentioned this is the two year and as the two year anniversary, we are actually going through a bit of a change in transition. So would you like to uh, inform our audience a bit about the, uh, the change that's going on? Yeah. So at the two year mark, I am stepping back from the every episode kind of role and turning that responsibility as well as all that power that comes with it over to Jason. More responsibility than power, but yeah, it's the way it goes. And that is, is happening because there are a number of things that are happening here with me that are taking up more of my time. I mentioned the energy company coming out of stealth. The environmental company that I work with, that I'm on the board of, just signed with the government of Papua New Guinea for two 
what we're calling test projects. And for us, a test project is 10,000 hectares and 3,000 people. So that's a big test project, and we're doing two of them. So, so that's more involvement on my part, and I'm getting back to some of the stuff that I've done before in terms of volunteer work. I'm doing some, some work at, at UT via either ATI or the Mandela Fellows. And last but not least, because I can't get out of the content creator mode, I've started a new column on LinkedIn called The Conservative Environmentalist because it's a viewpoint issue of more politics than we try to talk about here while we still try to take care of the planet. So there's some interesting things I think I'll be talking about over the next few months. So I'm, uh, it's exciting stuff that you've got going on. I'm uh, more than happy to, you know, just take over the entire throne and <laughs> all the, all the power and responsibility that that takes. That means us. For here, we're going to go on a, a short hiatus as we kind of revamp a few things. Got some fun stuff already scheduled and planned out when we come back, or in this case, when I come back uh, later in the summer, and it'll be a lot of fun, but can't change the way that we, uh, we always wrap this up. So for the last time in this, and I'll, uh, I'll throw it to you, what's next, Austin? What's next, Austin? I honestly believe only good things are going to happen. Next. I think we're going to have a recession nationwide within the next six months, but Austin, as we've discussed, is the last in and the first out. Andy Bot is amazing. And I think over the course of the last hour, you and I have talked about some of the things that we want to or that you want to add into what Andy Bot's capable of. I hope to be able to have access to it so I can have those conversations with, with it and, and get some ideas of my own from what I'm doing. And finally, what's next, Austin? We need to keep Austin weird. It has worked so far for this town, whether it's, it's the, the Peter Rex saying that every five years you have a, cla a new class coming through and you and I are in the 2020 class and we're getting now to the point where we're going to be seeing the 2025 class in another 18 months or so. I think it's amazing. The growth in the Austin music scene, the, the Austin convention scene. I mean, at South by Southwest, Icon built a band shell just to show that they could do it. There's an involvement here about keeping Austin in a large sense, the way it has been, that I think is amazing. There are amazing people here. I am so happy that we made Austin our home. And hey, my one prescription for everybody is keep it up. Well, that's a great note to end on. And thanks for a fun two years on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. And it's been an amazing amount of time uh, that you and I have worked together and I just want to make sure because it's hysterical when somebody comes up to one of us and says, oh, the, oh, you guys are siblings, right? You know, that I'm the older brother and you're the, no, I'm Jason's dad. I'm very proud of my son and everything that he's done. And I'm very, very happy to have spent these last two years on a weekly basis, basically working with you on something that I think we created that's, that's amazing 
and I expect it to continue that way. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.